there's a couple of decisions I made when I started the company that now seem like rather brilliant ones, although they're quite risky at the time. One was that we really wanted to focus on the enterprise. So it wasn't necessarily going to be an SMB play. And also, we didn't want to focus on our region. What we wanted to focus on was clients who were doing the best and most sophisticated things in marketing operations and sales operations. And that meant not being as focused on a single geography where we were located and instead being really focused on a particular industry and type of organization. Hello and welcome to the Ecom Ops Podcast. We believe that there is more than enough content focused on e-commerce marketing and not enough content celebrating the real heroes of e-commerce, those running the operation. Each week, we find and interview an e-commerce operations expert to share the secrets behind how some of this industry's most exciting businesses are run. I'm your host, Norbert Strappler, the CEO of SingSpider. Hello and welcome to another Ecom Ops podcast. And today I have a great guest here. His name is Greg and he is the owner of Cloud Cattle, a consultancy that helps enterprises to build and optimize their revenue operations. Hey, Greg, great to have you here on the show. Thanks for having me, Norbert. Yeah, more than happy to have you here. Greg, tell me a bit about yourself. I know you're a big number, <laughs> but maybe you introduce yourself and talk a bit about your business and how you got into e-commerce and consultancy. Sure. So I started working in digital marketing in the late 2000s. So 2007, 2008, maybe I was working at a national cinema chain. And at that time, the industry was going through a pretty fast acquisition phase. So there was a lot of consolidation in the industry. And we went from being a small regional chain to a very large national one, one of the largest ones in North America. And, you know, I had the benefit of that time that because we were growing really quickly and we're well-funded, I could start to do some pretty cool things. So that was when I started to propose ideas like, hey, I think we should be using this thing called Google Analytics. And hey, I think we should try this new thing that's out there called Google AdWords. And you know, we're syncing the sales database between three computers manually every morning. And that was my job. <laughs> and, and I think that this new cloud solution that I found called Salesforce could help with that. And hey, we're sending out a quarter of a million emails a week. You know, this platform called Exact Target, which eventually became Marketing Cloud, I think this is something we could use. So it was really a point in time where digital marketing was in its infancy. And I had that opportunity to start to use these platforms that became much bigger over time. At the time, they were fringe in many ways. And over time there, I introduced things like mobile ticketing. So we're generating a lot of e-commerce revenues. We got very focused on AdWords and Google Analytics and email marketing and other things. And eventually, I was recruited to run what would now be called marketing operations, although didn't have a name back then, at a company called Radiant 6. And so at that point, we're using Salesforce, we're using a lot of Google Analytics, we're using Pardot at that time. And eventually, Salesforce acquired Radiant 6 to be the first portion of what would eventually become Marketing Cloud. So very great for me in that not only was I getting to experiment with all these solutions and build this concept of marketing operations, although again, it didn't have a name, we got acquired by Platform, which is one of the platforms, or Salesforce which was one of the platforms I loved working in. And then eventually Salesforce also acquired very conveniently for me, um, Exact Target and Pardot. So it was really a great 
opportunity in terms of right time, right space, right place. And then I went on to build marketing operations and sales operations machines at uh, two or three other startups. And eventually at the last one, I became COO and it was acquired. During that transition of um, being prepped to be acquired, I decided I don't want to really do this startup thing anymore. So what I knew I wanted to do was continue to work in revenue operations. So I started Cloud Kettle in that context seven years ago of, hey, what if I build a company where we just get to work with the best and brightest people and help build up their revenue operations functions? And that's kind of where the company came from. Awesome. Thanks for that intro. What do you think sets Cloud Kettle apart from your competition? A lot of it is focus. There's a couple of decisions I made when I started the company that now seem like rather brilliant ones, although they're quite risky at the time. One was that we really wanted to focus on the enterprise. So it wasn't necessarily going to be an SMB play. And also, we didn't want to focus on our region. What we wanted to focus on was clients who were doing the best and most sophisticated things in marketing operations and sales operations. And that meant not being as focused on a single geography where we were located and instead being really focused on a particular industry and type of organization. And so that has paid off in spades. So we're always very focused on the enterprise and invested a lot in being very focused on some specific platforms, Salesforce being the hub of that, and also invested a lot in being very focused on clients who are in highly regulated, high compliance industries. So we did a lot of work around not only securing our own infrastructure and becoming SOC 2 compliant and getting audited annually for that, but also around becoming experts in how you make the Salesforce ecosystem more secure and really building up a book of business based on those items. So that, you know, it turned out very luckily for me that those, that hypothesis that that could be a productive space uh, mm-hmm. worked out. And that's really been the heart of what Cloud Kettle's done. And a lot of the time, that means we make tough decisions. And there's clients that come to us and, you know, we realize they're not the right fit and we find a better partner for them because we know we're not going to be the right ones. But that's what has allowed us to build the business so well is focusing on an area that is niche, but that we're experts in. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Can you tell me a bit more about how you leverage these platforms or what's the key to drive revenue with Salesforce and Google ecosystem? So I, I mean, there's quite a few different ways. If I was to focus on the intersection of the Google and Salesforce ecosystems, which is where we do a lot of work. When I started doing that type of work back in, let's say, 2008, 2009, um, and later at Radiant 6 in 2011, 2012, everything we did, we had to build by hand. So if we wanted anything to move from the Google ecosystem to the Salesforce ecosystem or vice versa, it was really either mass exports on a daily basis, or we were bringing in developers and building stuff by hand. And it was very brittle. We were trying to move very quick. It was pretty janky. You know, there'd always only be one person who understood how each thing worked. And if they were sick that day, something wouldn't work properly. But we understood that there was some value in it and we were able to optimize, you know, what our cost per marketing qualified lead and our cost per sale and all these different things were in a way that other organizations weren't able to. What's happened over time is Salesforce and Google have seen that value. And probably three or four years ago, they struck partnership and started building out a lot more in the terms of the native connectivity between those platforms. So now there's a native integration between Sales Cloud and Google Analytics. There's a native integration between Sales Cloud and Google Spreadsheets. There's a native integration between Google Analytics and Marketing Cloud. And so 
in the context of what we can do now, there's still a lot that we do by hand and we're using data warehousing to aggregate a lot of this data from an entire set of Google ecosystems, an entire set of Salesforce ecosystems. But you can do a lot now natively in a way that you never could before. And there's a ton of value in that. And you know, one example I would give that people really miss out on is there's a free native connector between Google Analytics and Sales Cloud. And you can pump all your lead status and opportunity stage data natively, easily, with very little technical knowledge into Google Analytics. And then you can build audiences based on that. So instead of looking at your pricing page and saying, oh, the bounce rate on our pricing page is really high, you can look at that pricing page instead and say, oh, okay, we've enriched all this data in Salesforce. So now we can actually see what the bounce rate on our pricing page in Google Analytics is based on whether people became a marketing qualified lead in Salesforce or whether they became a disqualified lead. We can see what that bounce rate behavior looks like based on, you know, are they an SMB versus an enterprise? And so you can start to look at that pricing page and say, okay, it does have a high bounce rate, but of those people who are bouncing, they're part of a demographic that we're not that interested in. Mm-hmm. And so we're using data enrichment from platforms like Clearbit and also using Salesforce to generate those custom audiences in Google Analytics has been a game changer in terms of what a non-technical person can do. And then Taking that to the next step, which is, okay, now that that data and those custom audiences exist in the Google ecosystem, in Google Analytics, we can now very easily and automatically move those into the Google AdWords ecosystem. And now we can have these audiences that we run ads to. So we can say, hey, if somebody becomes a marketing qualified lead in Salesforce and they are an enterprise organization, they have over this many employees, and we know that because we've done clear bit enrichment, well... I want to aggressively run retargeting video use cases and testimonials to them to move them from marketing qualified so that they're very aware of our brand when a salesperson reaches out to them, or they're very aware of our brand as the lead up to swiping that credit card happens. And conversely, we can do the same thing with disqualified people. So if somebody becomes disqualified in Salesforce, or if somebody's email bounces in Marketing Cloud or one of the other platforms we have connected in Google Analytics, we can add them to an audience that's like disqualified people. And then in Google AdWords, therefore, we can also mark those people as disqualified and use them as, hey, don't run ads to these people, exclude these people from our ad buys. And the next evolution of that, once you have that coming and you've done a really good job of tweaking those audiences and getting them right, then you say, hey, AdWords, I want a lookalike audience of this pool of good people. And I want a lookalike audience of this pool of bad people. And by doing that, you can start hitting a much broader target, not just the group of people that you're trying to retarget, but actually a new pool of people that you would have never known about that you can now run advertising to. And that's really, really powerful and can have a very significant impact on your acquisition costs. And do you consider this as a common mistake that people make in e-commerce to just have, let's say, plain analytics data without enriching that and grouping that in the right way? I don't know if I'd call it a mistake so much as a lack of understanding and knowledge of how easy it is to do this. Like this is, you do not have to have a degree in Google Analytics to execute on this. First of all, there's a ton of free online blog posts that would help you with it. But what we're talking about is native integrations that these companies have built. This is a doable known solution on how to do this. The biggest miss generally is that if your company is small, you've got a person who's tight for time, so they don't have time to figure this stuff out. If your company is big, you might have a third party doing Google Analytics or an internal group 
working group that's very divorced from the other teams. And then additionally, you have an ad agency. And the Google Analytics team is not explaining or is not able to educate the advertising agency, the third party, that these abilities and capabilities exist. And so what happens, especially in larger organizations, is these capabilities don't make it all the way down the food chain to the agency. And then executing on it doesn't make it all the way back up the food chain to analytics so it can be optimized on. And that's where you end up having really big, sophisticated ad agencies doing really dumb, bad retargeting. And I'm sure you've experienced this. You go to a website for a B2B or B2C solution, depending on what you're purchasing, and it's just brute force, dumb retargeting. You know, you're like, hey, this company is huge. Like, why is it this bad? And it's generally one of two things. One is that they've optimized some other stuff that just doesn't fit the mold for you. And so it appears to be bad for you, but it is optimizing against something properly. But generally what it is, is they're just brute forcing it. And they don't have the ability in terms of coordination between different groups inside the company to execute on this broader, much more integrated vision. Got it. But it's not Got a technical it. issue. It is a coordination of internal parties issue. Yeah, it's communication. I think it's just communication that A, doesn't know about B and vice versa. And this leads to problems. And I know this from quite some projects with customers that this is for sure the case at many, many companies. They don't talk too much to each other and everyone has his job and they do just the job, but the communication is missing and it could help so much. At Cloud Cattle, you, you offer a free assessment called a health check for the marketing cloud. What does an unhealthy marketing cloud look like? Yeah, I mean, not surprisingly, given our focus on security, you know, one of the key things that we're checking and focusing on is the security of that health cloud or that marketing cloud instance. So that's a big concern for us, obviously. And then it, there's a lot of very technical items that that health check is running through automatically. But in general, in terms of more broadly, regardless of what that health checker, uh, health check is looking into or not, if we look across all marketing automation platforms, Health Cloud, Pardot, et cetera, you know, there's a lot of security gaps generally. So, you know, quite a few that we look at, even big sophisticated companies are missing basic items like just having multi-factor authentication turned on, which is mind-blowing when you think about it. And they're missing, you know, there's a startling number of companies that still don't have their DNS and DKIM and other just basic email settings set up properly. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a very odd number of really big smart companies who just don't have their landing pages and subdomains set up properly. So there's a lot of that. And then more broadly, what we're looking at is, okay, well, what is the health of your sends? So for each time you send an email, it's great that we want to focus on what is our open rate or what is our click rate or what is our action. But for a lot of organizations, they're even missing basic things like, hey, over the last 90 days, you only emailed 10% of your total subscriber base. So they're aging out and they're, they're not going to be useful in the future. And of all the ones that you've emailed in the last 120 days or whatever you know, arbitrary period we're talking about, only this percent was reachable. So you know the rest were bad emails, dead emails, bounces, et cetera. So we're looking into a lot of things about what the health of your overall base mm -hmm. looks like and how frequently and effectively you're touching that base. Because if you have a million person database, but you're only emailing 10% of those people a year. That other 90%, when you do email them, they're not even going to remember who you are anymore. And they're going to click no, that spam button yeah. because you're not building that relationship with them on an ongoing basis. So we're very interested in what the health of the overall 
base of the, you know, the database quality is, not just what is the open rate for this email. Of course, there should be several journeys running at any given time, and we should be nurturing a bunch of different groups of people in different ways, not just hammering everybody with the same newsletter. But if you're not communicating to people, and there's a fine balance, you obviously don't want to over-communicate. And I'm sure we've all been signed up for uh, some kind of newsletter from a big brand where you start getting an email every day and you're like, well, what's going on? I don't need this many communications about buying a new mattress, or I don't need this many communications <laughs> about a new set of headphones. But the reverse, in my experience, is more often the case where marketers are very conscious about not emailing people too often. And what they're not conscious about, and a lot of it is lack of resources, is that they're not emailing most of their database often enough and the relationship gets forgotten. And so what happens is they get people to sign up for an event in November. They may or may not attend that event, but then they don't do anything with that except for one email after the event until October of the next year. And they send out an email about the event again. Well, most of those people, you know, have forgotten largely about that brand. And, you know, there's an egocentric mistake or error that's happening if you think they actually remember who you are by that point in time, because they don't. So it's an under-emailing in many cases that turns out to be more often the error than an over-emailing. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah, this is what many people are actually afraid of to send out too many emails, but it's also a failure to send it to sell them. Yeah, I understand yeah. that. I think a lot of the time, the reason that we see that is people are very conscious about over-emailing, but then conversely, it's actually hard to get an email out the door. Like if we're talking about a nine email journey that's supposed to last three months, I'm just making up an arbitrary kind of window of time and period. That actually takes an incredibly long amount of time for somebody to write all the copy for, put all the assets together for, make it interesting, make it compelling, have a story arc that goes across that full set of nine emails, et cetera. That takes a huge amount of time and it involves, you know, a creative team, it involves content writers, it involves the email team. And so when we look at how long that takes, most of those groups tend to be really understaffed. And that's why they're not sending enough emails. It's not a lack of desire to do it. They just literally don't have the capacity internally to have that many emails going out. Got it. Yeah. You also have a blog with a lot of posts about Salesforce marketing, news updates, and, and much more. You're sharing tips and lessons. You add value to your marketability as a brand and the service. How, how does it help you? How does it impact your company? I mean, I think culturally, you're either going to be a brand that's into doing that or you're not. And there's there's got to be something in your DNA that makes that want to happen. And it, you know, if we look at me, for better or for worse, in many ways, Cloud Kettle, to a certain extent, despite the fact that we're like, we have many, many employees, to a certain extent, Cloud Kettle is a reflection of Greg as the CEO and figurehead. And, you know, I come from a family where my grandparents were teachers, my parents were teachers, my sister is a teacher. And I have, I think, an innate desire to want to educate people and to want to spread the word and, and to want to help in that context. And I was very lucky in my career When I worked at teacher uh, DNA, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I've got the teacher DNA, and then also I worked at the cinema chain, and I got to see how Disney and Fox and Sony and these incredible companies were leveraging their content in very early days in terms of gaining attention online, and that I think those two things being combined really generated this desire to be a content marketer. It's a bit of an outdated term, but I really believed in that. And then when I was at Radiant Six. We generated a ton of content. 
And I saw how effective that was in terms of generating, you know, SEO value. Selfishly, that is a thing that happens for us, but also something much more difficult to measure is how impactful that content is in the last mile of the sale. So, you know, when we talk to people and we're like, hey, you know, how did you find out about us? Blah, blah, blah. A lot of the time we can tell that they have found us via search or they were referred to us. And then we're going through that sales process. And then in those final stages, they're doing a lot of validation of us by going to our website and going to podcasts we've been on and looking at videos of us speaking at Dreamforce and other events. And that content is helping smooth the friction in that last mile of the sale because it's demonstrating, wow, I'm engaging these guys because I want to know more about improving the security of our marketing cloud instance. Or I'm engaged in these guys because I want to know much more about how I make our instance of marketing cloud much more compliant in the context of privacy legislation and things like GDPR. And when I Google it and that topic, they actually come up like five times on the page. So these guys clearly know what they're doing. And I went and I downloaded a white paper on it and I was reading it later and I realized Cloud Kettle was actually the people that wrote it. So there's you know this innate thing in me that loves doing that education and putting it out there, but also there is a business value to it or we wouldn't be able to justify it. And when we look at how we structure Cloud Kettle, I don't remember the exact stat, but uh, quite a few employees, I'm going to say like 16 or 17 employees contributed to the blog last year. And that's not a surprising number to me. It is a surprising number to people outside the company because every employee, when they come up with what their annual goals are going to be and how we're going to measure them for a good chunk of our employees, there's items in there in terms of write this many blog posts a year or contribute to this many case studies or white papers or speak at this many events or beyond this many podcasts, not just for the leadership team like me, but for every employee, because we want them to be able to go out there and do that type of thing. And that's also what that DNA is what allows us to do things like we do this thing called Salesforce Saturdays, where members of our Salesforce team are volunteering Cloud Kettle. You know, it's not part of the Cloud Kettle brand. We donate money to help make it happen, donate space, but they on Saturdays go out and they teach people how to use Salesforce so that those people can begin a career in Salesforce. And we're doing a similar thing on the marketing cloud side on Tuesdays, starting in April. And there's a lot of community building stuff like that, that happens mm-hmm. both online in webinars and podcasts and things like that, but also in person. And it benefits us. It helps build that brand. Also, it's insanely good for recruitment. When you're trying to recruit the best of the best of the creme creme of employees in a very hot competitive recruiting market, when those people are like, wow, I have to choose between Cloud Kettle and this big four consulting brand who also does Salesforce. A lot of them end up thinking pretty heavily about Cloud Kettle because we've published so many assets over the years that they've learned from. And they know that we've got that relationship with them and they understand the brand in a way that you know another Salesforce group could never compete against hiring against one of those big four. So th- yeah. there is a lot of benefits to it, but also just makes me feel good. I like doing it. Yeah, yeah. It's a great job to do that. It's it's really fun. You talked about it already in the beginning, Radiant 6, your marketing, uh, digital marketing uh, agency that was acquired by Salesforce. What is the most important to consider when uh, growing a digital marketing team? Well, I've been lucky. I've got to do that at three or four different companies now. Radiant 6 was kind of the perfect example of how you could get to do it. Very hot B2B SaaS company, growing really quickly. There's a team that believed in funding and growing marketing really heavily. 
I don't know how many opportunities in your career you get like that. I think the biggest secret is just recruiting really young, bright people. And when I look at the first couple of hires that happened when I was there, you know, I was lucky. I was recruited by somebody who had worked with me before. And then when I look at who our best hires were, there's a guy named Darren Kimboji, there's a guy named Dan Stratton. They had both come from references and had worked in digital marketing. And then Aaron Fitzgerald, Jamal, they joined the team. Jamal was another person who was referred. And they were all people who were like really insanely early in their careers, but had a basis in something that we knew was going to make this thing happen. Because being a digital marketer at that time was not a career path. What was a career path, if we look at those people's backgrounds, is like Dan was an insane numbers guy. Erin Fitzgerald was an insane content writer. She was a newspaper writer. She was a journalist. But they were all very young in their career, and they exhibited a very strong aptitude to learn very quickly. And so we were able to hire really brilliant people and turn them into digital marketers, as opposed to trying to go out and find digital marketers. And I think when I look at what's helping build the success of Cloud Kettle, yes, we've been able to recruit some amazing talent. You know, we have Prague who's then of our Salesforce practice, and we have Elliot, who's our marketing cloud architect. They've both been recognized by Salesforce as one of the few hundred Salesforce MVPs in the world. And so we've been able to attract that top talent. But then underneath that, we're able to hire these people who are recent grads, who are re-entering the workforce after something like a maternity leave or paternity leave, people who are looking for a career change and taking the leap of faith on really, really smart people, as opposed to demanding some crazy background of, we want to hire people of 10 years experience in Salesforce. I've got 10 years of experience in Salesforce, and that's great. But there's probably only a few hundred of us in the world because the platform's not that old. None of these platforms are. So I think the big secret to building that digital marketing team is hiring those really brilliant young people for something that might not be the direct skill set, but recognizing they're going to be brilliant and learn quickly, and then giving them their rope and letting them run with it. Good approach, especially uh, the resources are getting very rare when we look at, especially at the digitalization during and after and uh, yeah, Corona. It just was a boost in the digitalization. What should people in e-commerce be focused on right now? What do you think? I think I've probably been giving the same piece of advice for about 10 years now, and it doesn't change. So yeah. the digital marketers and e-commerce professionals and other, other people like us who tend to be technically orientated, we often get very caught up in buying the new platform and doing the new thing. And we ignore the regular, to use a very American phrase, the block and tackle basics. So we'll go in and we'll start working with a company who have purchased a new $100,000 investment in the CDP and a data warehouse and a bunch of other stuff. And then we look at it and Google Analytics still isn't configured correctly. Or they're getting ready to double down on some massive ad tech platform. And we look at it and they're not even doing retargeting properly in Facebook and the Google ecosystem. Like there's so many e commerce companies could benefit from taking that expenditure in some of those more sophisticated platforms, plowing that into hiring a really smart young person and having them optimize the base level platforms that are out there. And that would generate a far greater return. But there is way too much emphasis in my experience over the last decade placed on buying the new sexy thing 
and not enough on just getting your basics right. Like, hey, your landing pages are not good. You should just invest in optimizing your landing pages. And that's going to have a far greater impact than tool XYZ. Hey, just getting retargeting working properly, just figuring out how to configure Google Analytics properly and using custom audiences properly is going to have a far greater return than the new ad tech that you saw somebody present about in the keynote at whatever MarTech conference you came to. So in general, my piece of advice has kind of remained consistent over the years is that most companies are investing far too much in new sexy platforms and not nearly enough in getting the basics right. Yeah. I mean, it's always nice to see a keynote and a great marketing speech and uh, how great a tool is and how much impact it has and how much it will help you. But you're absolutely right. I think also the you need to get the things done right first. You need to, to have the basics done and you can see it when, when you analyze a Google Analytics setup and check it out that some just insert the Google Analytics code to your website and that's it. That's for sure getting the basics done is, is one of the important things. A great example there is how many companies are not using Google Tag Manager, even though it's free. It's like, hey, you could improve all your digital marketing and make everything you do more nimble in the digital marketing world with this one free piece of technology. All you have to do is just get it deployed and get your pixels into those buckets and start using this. That's going to give you far more flexibility and a far greater ability to do cool things for every new piece of technology that you have. And they don't even have that in place. So that's a great example of a free tool that people just don't take advantage of. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about automation. I'm an absolutely automation freak. So (laughs) how important is it for you? How important is it for you in the company or for your customers? Why should you use automation? How do you use it? And which impact does it have for you? So are we talking about marketing automation, like email automation specifically? Actually, any kind of automation. It always depends, in my opinion, on what you're doing. If you're in marketing, I think marketing automation, of course, is important. If you're in e-commerce, everything in kind of getting products from A to B to marketplaces, assigning uh, different information for customers and orders and shipping senders. So automation as is, as a success factor. I think it's a huge success factor. It's one of the things that allows you to get, be nimble. And for a lot of organizations, the reason that their 4,000 person company is getting outplayed by a 20 person company in the middle of nowhere they've never heard of before is that automation. And one of the mistakes a lot of organizations make is they try to do it all at once and they try to make it perfect. And when I look at what actually works in the real world is um, deploying that MVP model. So what is the minimal viable product here? Okay, we want to have this journey where automatically if somebody purchases something, we're going to send them a survey and then a gift card reward if they share it with a friend or something to that effect. Well, to make that happen, you might have to build this really sophisticated integration between your survey platform, your marketing automation email platform, and your e-commerce platform. And maybe maybe that's going to take some time. Hopefully, you're going to get there eventually for a bunch of other reasons, but that's not ready right now. Okay, well, we also don't know if this is going to have an impact on sales. We have a hypothesis that if we send somebody a survey and they rate us positively, and then we send the positive rating people a free gift coupon to share with friends, 
those people are going to find the right friends to share it with because they have a positive outlook of our organization. So that's our hypothesis of what we're going to do here. But we don't know if it's going to work. And so we don't want to spend 100 hours of time trying to completely automate this thing. And then when these platforms don't talk to each other, let's start as our minimal viable product to test this hypothesis of at the end of every day, we'll download a CSV or even just automate dumping a CSV into an FTP or an SFTP of everybody who bought something today. And then we're going to upload that into our marketing automation platform. And your marketing automation platform can actually probably pull just in a dumb way from that SFMTP. But if not, you can do it manually and upload it. And those people are just automatically sent that email with a link to the unconnected, unsynced, completely unconnected survey platform. And you know, at the end of the week, somebody downloads everybody who filled out that survey, looks at all the ones that had a positive review uploads them into the marketing automation platform, and it sends out that set of coupon codes that were also uploaded as a CSV. And so none of this stuff is automated, and it's very manual, and somebody's going to have to download and upload a CSV every day. But maybe that takes like 15 minutes. And in doing so, we're going to test this hypothesis over a month. At the end of the month, we look at the results. Is it impactful? It is. Okay, now let's invest in automating this thing. But really starting with that MVP of what is the bare minimum we can do to make this happen to test that hypothesis, that's where you need to begin. So again, the word testing here, we heard this very, very often in this podcast. And uh, it's again, something to test out. You have a hypothesis and you need to test it. And if it's valid, then it needs to be executed or it should be executed. If it's not valid and you're wrong, then you didn't invest too much money and too much time on it, but you were able to prove your opinion. And that's good. Testing is always a good, a good way in marketing to find things out. Cool. Yeah, last question for today. So sure. already finished again. Wow, time is running by. Last question. Who has taught you the most in, uh, in e-commerce in your career? Well, I think sales marketing. So yeah, sales marketing. I would say my one of my managers when I was at the cinema chain, Susan Oland, she taught me the most about how to be a manager and how to build a team. And if we look at where I made errors in my career and where I was successful in my career, generally those things are highly correlated between building a good team or making mistakes and managing people. But you know, it's usually one of those two things. And you know, she displayed a great deal of empathy and compassion and understanding and ability to coach someone in the case of me who was probably profoundly uncoachable. You know, she did a really <laughs> great job with that stuff. And she took a cocky young upstart who had an MBA but not very much real world real-world work experience who had a ton of really big, obnoxious ideas and figured out a way to get him to narrow those down and channel that stuff into something that was productive for the company and do it in a way that didn't dull my passion, but also operated within a risk constraint that an overall corporation could absorb. And I, I learned more from her about that kind of thing than anybody else. So there might be people from a technical perspective I learned more from, or from a particular domain perspective I learned more from. But if we think about why is Cloud Kettle successful today? Well, it's because we have a whole bunch of people here that adjusted for age are all smarter than me. And I profoundly believe that when you're hiring, you should look at each new hire and say, adjusted for age in this person's domain of expertise, are they smarter than I am? So is this 27-year-old smarter 
at this thing than I was when I was 27. And if they are, I want to hire them. And so if we look at Cloud Kettle being a an amorphous group of a bunch of people who adjusted for age are much smarter than me at the domain that they're experts in, that hiring methodology and how you coach that type of person, because they're all overachievers, and how you channel their efforts and their passions, that all came largely Well, not largely. I mean, I like to think my parents played a part in this and other people I've worked with over the years, but she focused it in a way that nobody else did. So I'll give her full credit for that. Wow, cool. That's great. Thank you so much. Greg, it was really a pleasure talking to you. And uh, what I could learn again is I heard this so much, get your data done right. Yeah, Get, get your data in shape, get the right data, set up the things correctly, And that's the first and the initial thing you should do before you go into any tools or any automations or any tryouts, get the data in shape and get the right data to really have the right information at your fingertips. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. See you later. Talk soon and good luck with Cloud Cattle. Bye-bye. Thanks. And that's it for this episode of the Ecom Ops Podcast. If you enjoyed listening and would like us to find and interview more e-commerce operations experts, please search for EcomOps Podcast in your favorite podcast listening app and then subscribe, rate, and review. Until next time.